When I was three years old, the infamous Roe versus Wade case came to the Supreme Court. And it was in those years that abortion became a legal right in the United States of America. In the 50 years since, more than 50 million pregnancies have been terminated by abortion. That means over 50 million babies have perished in their mother's wombs. To put that in perspective, that is roughly the equivalent of eradicating the entire population of the country of Colombia or eradicating the entire population of the country of Uganda or eradicating the entire population of the country of South Korea. When Roe v. Wade was overturned two years ago, the number of abortions across the United States declined slightly in some states and spiked dramatically in others. Nevertheless, it is estimated that some 2,400 babies are aborted every day in the United States. And to put that number in perspective, that's a little less than the total number of students enrolled at Rockwall Heath High School. But can you imagine if all the students at Rockwall Heath were terminated in one day? And not just one day, but the day after that day, and every day, and not just every day, but every day for a year, and not just for a year, but every year. And why in the world would that many people be terminated? Because they're not wanted? Because they were considered accidents or obstacles or inconveniences or deemed defective? Roughly 2,400 children are aborted in the U.S. every day. That means that by the end of this calendar year, some 876,000 babies will have died in utero. And to put that number in perspective, that's roughly the equivalent of eradicating the entire population of the city of San Francisco. Now, what kind of nation employs procedures that allow other people to take out an entire high school student body's worth of kids every day? What kind of nation enacts laws and policies that allow other people to wipe out an entire city's population worth of people every year? In an opinion piece at World Magazine, the Reverend Bart Gingrich wrote, faithful American Christians need to look an ugly reality in the face. There are lots of people who are okay with murdering unborn babies. We have basically had a holocaust of the innocent in this nation. Millions of Americans cannot look that enormous sin in the face, so they deny what's happening whether through anger or disengaged ambivalence. Many of our neighbors think that killing a baby can make bad situations better. Allowing mothers to have doctors kill their own children is somehow contorted into the compassionate thing to do. 
Indeed, the moral ambivalence on the sacredness of human life in the womb is part of a wider cultural trend, a demoralization and thus dehumanization of the American people, end quote. My friends, what more will it take for us to see that Uncle Sam is a child abuser? What is it going to take for us to understand that Lady Liberty is a bloodthirsty witch? In an effort to push back against their immoral cultural trends and to provide us some sort of moral and spiritual guidance, I'm going to say in an overstated way what the Holy Spirit says in an understated way in this story. The gospel of Jesus Christ is innately and intrinsically pro-life. The story we will explore today is arguably the most pro-life story in the Bible. And what I want you to gather here is that the story of the gospel is deeply life-giving and truly forgiving for anyone who has failed or fallen short in any way, big or small. The gospel is for patients who suffered the misery of abortion. It is even for the doctors who perform them. Such is the power and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is for you and for me. Now to pick up where we left off last week in this narrative... Elizabeth was the wife of a priest. She and her husband had never been able to make any babies together. But when she was advanced in years and past childbearing age, the Lord graciously opened her womb and she and Zechariah were enabled to make a baby together, a son. And when she was six months along at the end of her second trimester, She was visited by her much younger kinsman, Mary. Mary was also expecting a son, except she was in her first trimester. Both of these women had been visited by an angel. Both of these women conceived their babies by the power of the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth did it in the natural way, Mary in the supernatural way. So when Mary showed up at Elizabeth's home and greeted her, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaped for joy. Now already in this story, we see a variety of remarkable things unfolding. This is not the sort of story that we see every day. These are not the kinds of events that are common to our experience. But what I want you to keep in mind is that this is not a naturalistic materialistic or humanistic story taking place in a closed universe within the imminent frame. All four people in this story, the mothers and their babies, were filled with the Holy Spirit. God is present in this story, and one of those babies was God in the flesh. At this moment, John was six months along. Scientifically, that means he was about 12 inches long and weighed about two pounds. His skin was likely reddish in color, wrinkled, and veins were visible through his translucent skin. His fingerprints and his toe prints 
would have been visible. His eyelids had parted and his eyes were open. He could get the hiccups. He could respond to touches. He could even respond to sounds. And that is exactly what he did in this story. For the first several weeks of pregnancy, Elizabeth had only felt a few flutters of movement every now and then. But here at the end of her second trimester, John has grown big enough that his kicks and movements can be registered more and more felt by his mother. Jesus, on the other hand, is much smaller and less developed than John. At this point in the story, Jesus is only a teeny tiny little embryo in Mary's tummy. He was still being knit together and woven together in his mother's womb. So when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, John leaps for joy and Elizabeth felt it. But what was John leaping for joy about? John was not reacting to an impersonal clump of cells or a potential human fetus in Mary's womb. John was responding to the presence of the personal infinite God in the flesh that she carried in her womb. So just as David leaped for joy before the Ark of the Covenant, so now John leaps for joy before the Ark of the Christ when Mary walks into the house. John the baby rejoiced in the presence of the one that he was sent to prepare the way for. And notice that he does this long before he becomes known as John the baptizer. So let's take our cues from John the baby. Leaping for joy in the presence of Christ the Lord is the right and proper response. When Jesus comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead, we shall all leap for joy and bow our knees and praise his name and kiss his feet. But if we're taking our cues from John the baby, we don't need to wait until the end of all things to do that. We need to begin now, leaping in the presence of the Lord, rejoicing in the presence of Christ, our Savior. Among the many things this story shows us is that life begins in the womb at the moment of conception. Babies forming in their mother's wombs are made in the image and likeness of God. They have the breath of life in them, and God has a plan and purpose for their life. The story also shows us that the moment of Jesus' conception was the actual moment of the incarnation. That means that God became flesh in Mary's womb when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, not merely when he was born of the Virgin Mary. He was flesh long before his birth. When God came in the flesh, he came not as a full-term baby, nor a full-grown man. He came humbly and meekly into the world as a teensy tiny little zygote. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And when she heard the voice of Mary, she did what her husband was still unable to do because he had been silenced by the angel Gabriel. So Elizabeth, speaking for herself and for Zechariah and for all of us, shouted joyfully with a mega voice. She eulogized Mary and Jesus. She said, blessed are you among women. 
and blessed is the fruit of your womb. She considered Mary's visit a gift of grace. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She acknowledged that her baby was conscious of the presence of the Lord and Christ. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came into my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. I use the word eulogize here deliberately and intentionally because that is the Greek word that is used here. It's often the case that we reserve the word eulogy for a funeral or memorial where we say a lot of good things about a person who has just passed away. But we don't need to reserve eulogies for the end of life when we can also use them at the beginning of life, which is what Elizabeth is doing here. The word eulogize simply means to say good things, to praise, or to bless someone else. Now, if you think about it, you don't need any convincing eulogizing Jesus. We sing and preach and pray all the good things we can about Jesus because he is God in the flesh, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the healer of souls, the Savior of the world. But if you're like many Protestants and evangelicals, you might need a little convincing to eulogize Mary. And I know it makes us nervous to do this sort of thing, but think about what's unfolding in the story. Mary should be eulogized and praised and blessed as well. Like Elizabeth, we should shout for joy and say all the good we can about Mary. And here's why. For one thing, the Spirit says through Mary that all generations will rise and call her blessed. And in this story, we see a devout and godly woman who was filled with the Holy Spirit doing that very thing. And we are not exempt from such praise. Another reason to praise Mary is because she is the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. She sacrificed her reputation at a young age. She surrendered herself, body and soul, to the purposes of God. She served the Lord for the life of the world. And finally, another reason to praise Mary is because she is the second most important person to ever live in the history of the world. No Mary, no Messiah, no servant of the Lord, no savior of the world. Them's the rules. That's how God wrote the story. So here's the bottom line. Mary is worthy of our praise and blessing. She deserves to be eulogized. And while it's hard to think of that in the abstract, just imagine what it would be like if Mary showed up for church one Sunday and she came to sit among you or she came to your community group or a women's Bible study. Her mere presence would draw attention and we would all treat her as some kind of celebrity. Undoubtedly, we would say to Mary, how in the world did you raise such a godly and faithful son? How did you catechize Jesus? What was that like? And more importantly, we would ask, 
Mary, did you know? And we would get the definitive answer from her. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament and you're just hearing this story in Luke's gospel for the first time, it might seem like God was doing a strange, out-of-the-ordinary thing with John. But what we're about to see is that God was doing with John what God had done with many, many other people in the history of the world. And here are a few examples from the scriptures. Before Isaac was conceived and born, God told his parents, Abraham and Sarah, that a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. That was exciting news for people who, like Elizabeth and Zechariah, had not been able to make any babies of their own. But 15 years later, when Abraham and Sarah were about 100 years old, Isaac was born by the power of the Holy Spirit. Later on, when Isaac married Rebekah, they had children, twin boys to be exact, and when their sons, Jacob and Esau, were still in their mother's tummy, before they were born or had done anything good or bad, God told Rebekah, the older son will serve the younger son because God's purpose in election would stand. When David reflected back on his life, he praised God in the prayer of a psalm. He said, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And later on, when God called Jeremiah to become a prophet, Jeremiah protested and put up personal excuses and even used self-deprecating reasons. I'm too young. I'm too unskilled. I'm too inexperienced. And God responded to his protest by saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And finally, after the apostle Paul became a follower of Jesus Christ, he reflected back on his own life and he saw God's providential hand at work. And he saw the purposes of God unfolding for him. And he wrote this. I persecuted the church of God violently. And I tried to destroy it. Paul was like an abortionist when it came to the church. Trying to eradicate and destroy it. Why? He says, I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But, but when God, who had set me apart 
before I was born. But when God, who called me by his grace, but when God was pleased to reveal his son to me, he sent me to preach Christ to the nations. What I want you to see is that babies and little children hold a special place in God's heart. He has a plan and a purpose for each and every one. And we would do well to remember that. Sometimes here in the Bible Belt, you will hear people say things like, babies cannot believe Babies cannot understand. Babies cannot worship. Babies grow up in this sort of evangelical limbo. No one knows what to do with them. But God's word shows us that babies and little children can and do all these things. They worship. They trust. They obey. And much more. They even wage spiritual warfare. When they sing, when they lift their hands in the doxology, when they make joyful noises in the church, when they spill their goldfish and their juice gets everywhere, when they fight the good fight of the faith, that's what they're doing in worship. This is the rule, not the exception. Notice the psalmist says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have ordained praise because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Christian babies and children wage spiritual warfare. Babies do it when they come to church and leap in the womb, when they cry and babble and coo. Little children do it when they come to church and doodle and color and sing and bow their heads in prayer and come to the table to receive communion and lift their hands to receive the benediction. Another psalmist said, O Lord, my God, you are he who took me from the womb. You caused me to trust you at my mother's breasts. Can babies believe? Can they trust the Lord? Christian babies and children can, and they can do it from infancy. How? Because faith is a gift of grace. It is not a reward for rationalism. Another psalmist said, you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth, Upon you have I leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. The Hebrew word for leaned here means to be held up, to be propped up, to be supported. And so the psalmist is saying to the Lord, upon you have I been supported. And we can also say that when we were in our mother's wombs, the Lord was holding us up and lifting us up by his grace and love. Now, all of these stories show us that God starts caring for us long before we start caring for him and long before we start caring for ourselves, that God is conscious of us long before we are conscious of him, that God has a plan for your life is true. 
but not just for your life when you're old enough to understand what the plan is. God has a plan from your life from the beginning. As St. Paul put it in his message at Mars Hill, God has determined allotted periods in the boundaries of our dwelling place that we should seek God and perhaps feel our way toward him and find him. Yet God is actually not far from any one of us for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of our own poets have said, for we are indeed God's offspring. God cares about little babies and little children from tummy to eternity, world without end. So all of this helps explain why later on in the gospel of Luke, when parents bring even their infants to Jesus that he might touch them, that Jesus rebuked his disciples for running interference and for making parents feel bad about bringing their children to Christ. Jesus instructed his apostles, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. He also instructs all of us to do the same. And he inspires us to repent and humble ourselves in his sight when he says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the womb. Red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the children of the womb. The story we explore today is the most deeply pro-life story in the Bible. The story of the gospel is deeply life-giving, truly forgiving for anyone who has failed or fallen short of God's glory in any way, big or small. The story of the gospel is for sinners, not only for saints. It's for you, it's for me, it's for all of us. In the late second century, not long after Christ ascended into heaven, Saint Irenaeus wrote these things. Jesus came to save all through himself. All, I say, who through him are reborn in God, infants and children and youths and old men. Therefore, he passed through every age, becoming an infant for infants, sanctifying infants, a child for children, sanctifying those who are of that age, a youth for youths, becoming an example to the youths and sanctifying them for the Lord. So likewise, he became an older man for old men that he might sanctify the aged also. And then at last, Jesus came on to death itself so that he might be the firstborn from the dead so that in all things he might have the preeminence. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, let us pray. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness. Put upon us the armor of light now in the time of this mortal life in which Jesus Christ came to visit us in great humility. 
that in the last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to life immortal through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit now and evermore. Amen.